1959, Alaska became a state. Here at Trident, Alaska is our lifeblood, and with 34,000 miles of coastline and pristine waters, it's no surprise that the commercial fisheries help fuel the state's economic engine. We understand that fish is not something we own. It's something that has been entrusted with our care. We strive to support the fisheries as much as they support us. How we fish today affects the quality of our food and the health of the coastal fishing communities tomorrow. It's why we're committed to balancing responsible business practices with the sustainable use of natural resources. Listen in to chapter three to gain some insight into what life was like for Chuck in Alaska before Trident was around. Chapter three, seal hunting, the smell of money. Back in the 60s, the Alaska economy was a natural resource economy, much as it is today. Its wealth was mostly out there somewhere, and it was up to guys like the Birch Brothers of Kodiak to go out there, get it, and bring it back. Whether it was oil and minerals, fish and shellfish, timber or furs, the game in Alaska was a game for hunter-gatherers, and it was largely seasonal work. In order to keep working and feed a family year-round, it was necessary to adapt one's skills to chase whatever was available and to focus hard on bringing things back that someone was willing to pay for. Tourism wasn't what it is today. Taking somebody out to look at a glacier didn't pay the bills. Before animal rights activists began terrorizing opera patrons with cans of green spray paint, the fur market was a good market for Alaska, for men used to working the water and those who didn't envy the solitary life of a trapper, the seal skin market was particularly attractive. All they needed was a skiff, a rifle, and a skinning knife, and they were in business. Al Birch remembers how Chuck Bundrant showed up just in time to catch the tail end of it all. In the off times when fishing was closed, we'd go hunt seal. He got pretty good with a rifle. Since Oral and I had been hunting seals for a good number of years before Chuck joined us, he could never keep up with a skinning, but boy, he sure tried. What a life, that seal hunting. We used rifles, we never did any clubbing, and we concentrated on the adult seals. We'd work the bays and the rocks. When we worked out of Seward, the glaciers over there were fantastic for hunting. What you'd do in the glacier hunting is you'd anchor outside of the rubble field of floating ice from the glacier. We used two skiffs, and you'd just start easing up there, and the seals would get curious. They'd come out to see what you were doing. But you never shot a seal when it was looking at you. The only target you had was the head, and if you shot him when he was looking at you, he would throw his head back and open his airways and sink like a rock, and you'd lose him. So he always waited until he lost interest and turned sideways or, better yet, turned away from you. Then you'd shoot him in the back of the head or the side of the head and run like heck over there in the skiff because he'd still sink. They were in the water most of the time, but not always. The heavy ice fields were right up against the glacier and we'd ease our way up there. Usually, up against the pack ice, there'd be 30 to 50 seals right on the ice. And that was a great deal because 
they were out of the water. And that way you could pick the color. You always went for the ones with the contrast and the spots. A solid color wasn't worth much. You could get up to 30 or $40 a hide for a real good spotted hide. And back in those days, diesel was only 20 cents a gallon. So 40 bucks was pretty good money. When we were skinning, if we were competing against each other that is, it took about six minutes to skin the first one, but it was hard work. And by the time you got to the fifth seal, it took about 20 minutes to a half hour to skin it. Remember that if you nicked the hide, you got downgraded and it was no longer a number one hide. So if somebody was watching, we'd show off, but most of the time you focused on quality control as well as speed. For storage, until the buyer came through, we had those great big old salmon barrels, the tears that they used to salt salmon in. Before you packed the barrel, you'd salt the hides by laying the first hide in the fish hold, hair down, and putting a layer of salt on top of it. Then you'd take the next hide and lay it hair up, so the raw flesh was always laying against a half or quarter inch of salt. Then you'd just keep alternating as you stacked them up. You'd leave them in that salt for four or five days, and then you'd restack and resalt them. You'd take the top hide and put it on the bottom, add more salt, and so on. After about a week in that pile is when we used those great big wooden barrels. We'd put 100% brine in the tears and again, lay the hides out flat, flesh to flesh, hair to hair, making sure they were completely submerged and that stopped the oxidation. Count von Rebentlow was the fur buyer from Germany. We'd call him when we'd get back in and he'd drive down to Seward with his trucks from Anchorage. We'd run lines on the deck of the boat and put all the furs out on the clotheslines. Then we could start arguing about the value of the hides. We also got paid a bounty in those days for the noses, three bucks a piece. We'd bring in a gunny sack of salted noses up to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and they'd count them out. You'd have to take the whole face mask off the seal, the eyes, ears, and nose, and they'd cut them in two with a pair of scissors so you couldn't figure out a way to sell them more than once. But after we made five or six deliveries and measured them out, the guy at Fish and Wildlife would just ask, how many you got in the sack this time? Oh, we got about 75 or 80, we'd say. Just throw the goddamn things in the dumpster and I'll write you a check. I don't want to mess with those stinking damn things. My wife won't let me in the house. For those who may be offended by stories of fishermen hunting seals, it's important to understand that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service actually paid a bounty for each seal nose delivered, whether or not you went to the trouble of skinning the entire animal properly and selling it to the German count. The agency's goal was to reduce the seal population in order to protect fishery resources. The tide of science and sentiment has changed considerably since the 1960s. Back then, it was not only commonplace to shoot seals, but it was federal policy to have them shot. And the government provided plenty of incentives for fishermen to participate. It's hard to ignore the impact of the policy and practice when contemplating the subsequent decline of marine mammals in Alaska, not just seals, but stellar sea lions as well. As Birch noted, the federal government not only provided a financial reward to fishermen for shooting marine mammals, they also provided the ammunition, with very few strings attached. 
They came down to the boat once and they brought 10 cases of GI surplus ammo in the M1 clips. 1,500 rounds per case. 10 cases. And they said, you can have them if you shoot sea lions. They gave us 15,000 rounds of 30-06 just to shoot them, they said. We tried to sell some of the sea lion pelts, but that never worked because they're just a dull, dirty brown color. We were encouraged to do it even before they put the bounty on the seals. When we had the old Colonel Corn working for Alaska Freight Lines, they bought 30 cases of Korean War ammo down to us just to go shoot sea lions. And now, if you whack one with a feather duster, you're in big trouble. How times have changed, not just in Kodiak, but throughout Alaska. Birch's feather duster comment is no exaggeration. Under provisions of the Endangered Species Act, any operator who simply drives his vessel within three miles of a designated stellar sea lion rookery in Alaska is subject to a $25,000 fine and forfeiture of the boat. The Fish and Wildlife Officer was right about the stink. Though Bundrant wasn't a seal hunter for long, he never forgot the stench that accompanied the profession. It was a constant unwelcome companion and had followed him around even after a hunting trip was over. One Friday afternoon, after the boat was clean and we were all done, Bundrant recalled, I went out and bought myself a brand new pair of black Frisco jeans and a new flannel shirt. Larcy Cole was a pal of mine. We figured we might head up to the theater that night, catch a movie and see what was going on uptown. So I took a good shower and got dressed up in my new outfit figuring I looked pretty good, but things didn't always work out the way you planned it. Right when I jumped on the dock, one of the seagulls flying around crapped into the wind and it sailed down perfectly right onto my new Frisco's. I should have given her up right then, but I cleaned myself up as best I could and I met Larcy at the movie house. We didn't make much of an impression because the first thing he did when we got there was to let go of this awful fart and there was no way anybody in the place couldn't hear it. I was embarrassed to be anywhere near the guy and was looking for a seat as far away from him as I could get when Larcy yells out really loud, Don't worry, Chuck. Move over this way, and they'll think it was me. Things finally quieted down, and just as the movie was about to start, someone in the theater says, just loud enough so you could hear, I smell a seal hunter in the house. The terrible thing about it was they probably could smell me. That stench was just about impossible to wash off. It didn't end up to be a very good night for me. As I recall, I walked up to Solly's bar and got drunk. Thank you for listening to Chapter 3 seal hunting, the smell of money. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode, Horse Trading, Playing the Percentages, is released on Wednesday, December 4th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams. <laughs>